This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Nat McDonald. This episode was almost titled Chobani Solarpunk, but you'll have to visit the link to Nat's Twitter thread in the show notes to learn more. All right, let's intro Nat here. With nine years of experience as a licensed mechanical engineer, Nat McDonald brings his skills in engineering and technology to test fit as a product manager. Nat talks with customers regularly to design product procedures and algorithms that help architects and developers build at scale. He has been a speaker at various tech and AEC conferences, including Built, Ashray, and Autodesk University. Outside of work, you can find him tweeting with the AEC tech community or mountain biking in Portland, Maine. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss how Nat defines what he calls the people process problem, what it means to be a product manager, the evolution of TestFit as a generative platform from parking all the way to industrial to residential subdivision, and what they call from towers to townhomes, the magic of the software, the future of a better feasibility ecosystem with a product they teased called Rex, some real talk about the fragmentation of the industry, how messy the problem really is, and more. This was a fantastic conversation with Nat, so do me a favor and share this episode with your colleagues and leave a rating and review of Troxel on Apple Podcasts. By doing that, you can help support what I'm doing and broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry using the magic of algorithms in the podcasting universe. And don't forget to visit the sponsors who help make this episode possible. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Nat McDonald. Nat, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you very much, Evan. It's 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 fun to actually be on here now. Yeah, this is great, and uh, it was great to see you in person. I, I know we've talked quite a bit over the I don't know past couple of years at least, and finally to see you in Anaheim for just a moment was really cool. And uh, your hair is incredible, so I have to say that out loud. Um, but but yeah, thank, I, I've got be... hair for a podcast, right? Yeah, you... <laughs> absolutely. So. Uh, what do you want to talk about? What's what what have what have you automated today, Nat? Oh, automated today. Uh, I feel like I'm using Calendly a lot more now. Like, just the best way to get people to meet up, just to talk with people. So, you know, I'd say that that's my one thing today that I was I was working on a bit. But uh, productivity, yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like as as a product manager now, most of my time is like figuring out when to talk to people and like, you know, coordinate what features we're working on. So it's uh less, less dynamo than it used to be at my uh, engineering firms, but uh, it's a, it's a good different. You put a question out on Twitter. I was going to ask you what you want to talk about, but you, they, they, the Twitter folks have, have delivered. 
So your question was, uh, what should I talk about when we're recording today? Wrong answers only. And uh, do you want to go through some of these answers that people provided? I, yeah, I actually yeah. learned I learned something new here. That's why I really want to want to want to get into this. So uh, I'll just start off with the one where I learned uh, from Gavin Gavin Crump, which is the BIM Guru on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he said uh, because it's it's wrong answers only. Select an AEC industry fat middle, and then apply one of these. I guess is he's imp- he's implying to imply to uh, put into one of these uh, AutoCAD commands: flatten, overkill, and explode. Or explode, I should say. So you can only pick one, right? Any any quick answer on that one? Which one would you choose? Flatten, overkill, or explode? I didn't know what overkill was. This is what I learned. I learned what, and it's like, how did I not what, know? What this? is it? Overkill is a command that will find duplicate elements and delete one of them. <laughs> like, so if you have overlapping lines. Okay. Yeah. Like, what an amazing command, right? Uh, yeah. Not that I ever needed it, because I always drew so perfectly in AutoCAD. <laughs> But but if I opened up somebody else's drawing, I would have loved to apply overkill to it. So I think that's the one I would choose. I would choose overkill, man. There's so much redundancy in AEC firms and in the industry. Everyone's duplicating the same tools. This is, a, I could draw analogies from this command for days. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I, I didn't know what overkill was. So that's, that's good to know. It's funny, my like, my technology journey in AEC I like just did a little bit of AutoCAD at the beginning of it. So like I, I know enough about it, but like pretty soon it was just like a small firm I was in. It was like, you know, all Revit jobs after that or something. But I think the um I think the explode one is a good analogy. And it's probably like for me, I think it's just like it's the absolute like anarchy and chaos command right the last resort it's the last resort (laughs) like it's almost like like at the beginning of a product like you know once you go through sd or dd or something like i almost wish i could just hit that command and be like this is this is going to be what the project will be in the end anyway like just all this fragmented data like i should just hit this now and just you know we'll deal with it as we go this is totally a mentality that exists right which is like screw it like we're we're just it's like it's like when we started in Revit. This just came up in a recent episode. Actually, it was uh, at, at some point every single project got exported back to AutoCAD because <laughs> nobody was comfortable going farther in Revit anymore because it was so new. It was such a paradigm shift for so many people. It was like just export it and start. You know, just we'll, we'll just fix it there. That's totally what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, it, it, exactly. It. It's just like you know what? Like we we tried. You know, we tried to follow the standards. The standards were made by someone that wasn't in this group. Like they're dumb. You know, we're just going to move on. Yes. Yeah. We we we're so much smarter than them. All right. So some of the other answers we got here was uh, another one from Gavin. How, how to get started learning about Revit. <laughs> I love the the extra word. Not just learning Revit, but learning about it. That's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. The, the omnipresent being of Revit in this industry right now. One of the ones that, that was about you was something about uh, your your response was steampunk. Uh, what was that one? Oh, Chobani Solar Punk. Chobani Solar Punk. <laughs> Honestly, that, that, I feel like that's one of the things. I feel like there's a, I don't know if it's necessarily a New York City AEC Twitter, but it's like this. It's it's a sub subset of Twitter of AEC Twitter, which would be like uh, the hustle and grind uh, architect or the hustle architect or whatever, and you know some of those 
uh, that side of the Twitter sphere. And they, they, when they brought that up, I was like, man, that is, that is just the perfect description for like, you know, this, like, Hey, let's put a plant in the rendering. And like, that's, that's, that makes uh, it sustainable. Right. Yes. Look at, look, we do sustainability. There's, there's green in this. Uh, Josh Mings says brutalism. Of course, Josh says brutalism. Uh, Marianne Watcher said parametricism, which yes. Is, yeah. And, and with a, with a gif of, I say gif, um, ma, with spaghetti going crazy on the screen, right? I, I, that was the perfect image to go along with. Cause she, she put like every other letter in parametricism uh, as a capital. Uh, and so I just automatically think of, um, Schumacher and Zaha, right? Uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. I, I like that one because that is a, that is like a throwback, right? Like that's almost like far enough back where, like I, I almost wasn't in the industry at that point. Like it was far enough back that it like that was the thing. It was like parametricism. It's gonna gonna change everything. And I mean, we still use parametricism in many many ways, especially in test fit. So it, it is the test fit style. Is that what you're saying? It is the style of architecture known as parametricism. That's what test fit is uh in terms of like yeah yeah maybe maybe in terms of our user interface yes it's like it's like a vintage throwback software in that in that respect this is great all right well i there's there's so many i'll link to the thread on twitter in the in the show notes because everybody should at should just check it out there's some great answers in here so thank you for putting that question out there i i wanted to kind of start off the the episode learning about You've t- mentioned it already a couple times of like when you entered the industry. So you can't, you have an engineering background and I, I, I'm, I have an architecture background. I have no idea what it's like to come into AEC as an engineer. Like, just give me what, what was your kind of take of the landscape of the E in AEC when you entered? Yeah. So it was, it's actually quite interesting because the, even within my, the and like I'm a mechanical engineer licensed and focusing mostly on HVAC, a little bit of plumbing, but not, not so much. You know, it, it was an interesting start because I, I I took one course in college. I went to uh, Rensselaer Polytech uh, RPI up in Troy, New York, and uh, they have like a fantastic architecture program, a great structural engineering program, and masters, I believe, too. For HVAC it, mechanical, it was like just the ugly stepchild, like just the the like i'm pretty sure our and they were great our professor our two professors basically were paying the college to teach this course like the college was like there's no research in this there's no nothing like it's i love not- the it's just like the bootstrap startup inside the the in- college of environmental design or whatever <laughs> yeah it, it, it was it was and like you know this guy one of the professors had a PhD in uh, mechanical engineering, was working at GE doing like HVAC systems of jet airplanes or something, which like once you get into compressible fluids, it's like, I don't know what, what you even do there. It, but, it is rocket science at that point, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> cool. that was like, that was my first step into it. And that was actually my first time I ever used Revit. They didn't really teach Revit, but I was like, there's this software. It seems like it should be able to do this. And, you know, I, I did one of my projects in it and attempted to do the engineering calculations in it. And it, they were just like, that's dead wrong. Like, I forgot the grade what I got that I got, but it was like, it was questionable. So, yeah, so that was like kind of the introduction. And I like I saw that and I was like, this is interesting enough to go into as a career. 
I worked at an engineering firm in Albany for a bit, like 30 people. And then I worked at, uh, after that, I worked at a, and they did like a bunch of state projects, all different stuff. And then let's see, after that, I moved to Boston, did like clean room design for biotech facilities. And then uh, previously was at Borough Happeld in New York doing like a lot of computational stuff and worked on some labs there. What else? Handful of stuff. So I'm curious to get your perspective on just what the, not really the culture of those companies, but like, what is the, what was your view of the profession from your, on that side of things? Cause I, I call it a side because I'm on the architecture side. I'm using my podcasting air quotes, but give me, what was your, what, what was your perspective on that? I, I saw them very similar. So like each of the three firms I worked at, one was 30 people, one was 800, one was a thousand or so, probably a little bit more, 1100 maybe. And really like in terms of, uh, I saw them very similar. Basically, you know, they all have the same business model of, you know, partners paying into the, into the company, getting work done by the hour and billing by the hour. And so when I think of architecture firms and engineering firms, I think of them pretty similarly. And that's why like on Twitter, sometimes I'll very, I'll like, I'll very easily kind of like dole out dumb, not advice or whatever, but you know, thoughts about the industry. And I'll often just say architecture because I see it very much the same. It's, they fall under the same business model. Are there more architects on Twitter? Is that why? Oh yes. Oh yeah. Thousands <laughs> yeah, more. Thousands I, was, more. I was thinking that too. Yeah. yeah. There's like five of a, five mechanical engineers that do HVAC on Twitter. And they're all, they're all great, but, uh, yeah, very different. So when you're looking at the, at the industry, were, were you, okay. So, so a couple of questions, what was your general sense? Like, like, is it, this is in dire need of uh, a revolution or, or some version up to that. And then the other thing is, is did you see each size of these firms? You said you see them similarly. So does that mean they all have the same problems that all need to be fixed? Or does that mean just just because of the business model and because of the way the firm is structured, they all operated very similarly? Let's see. So sorry, what was your first question? So two questions. Yeah, the, sorry about that. The, the first question really is like, did you, your general view of the profession, did you feel like it it was in dire need of a revolution? <laughs> like Like the business model, everything was just kind of stagnant? Yeah, I mean, I came in... I was working at this 30 person firm, you know, there was, you know, one or two BIM managers and like the stuff I was doing was not crazy. It was like putting formulas into a Revit parameter. And like, that was like, that was kind of like changing the way things were done there. It was like, you know, moving this formula from Excel to Revit. And so I pretty quickly was like, this seems like there's a lot of opportunity here. Like, it's not like some other field where. I mean, you could say this about architecture and engineering in some way, but some fields like you have to get a PhD to move that, you know, that technological innovation, just that tiniest, tiniest little bit. And coming into AAC, it was like the problems we're looking at are not, you don't need a PhD to solve. Like it's really more of like a people process problem in a lot of way. It's like finding a technology or innovation or whatever you want to call it. And applying that into a group of people that so that they can actually use it. And I think that was what was very similar about most of those firms. You could very, a lot of times you could find people that are like, yes, I, I want to push this forward. And some other people that were just like, 
you know, that's not my job. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it the way I'm doing it because it works. Yeah. So I don't know if I got both questions in that. Yeah, I think you did. And and because I think, I think the arc, I think I know your arc, which is like at some point, which is similar to a lot of people's arc who are listening to the show, which is like, you just kind of get like, why are we still working on that dumb stuff? Why aren't we working on something bigger, better? Uh, Why aren't we moving forward? Why aren't we moving the needle? And then you kind of realize that you can't do it in those companies. You can't work on the profession when you're working in the profession. And so you kind of have to move, I think, the the mentality that that I experienced, that I think you experienced, I think a lot of people experience is uh, you have to move into the startup side of things because that is where innovation actually is happening. And and to your point, it doesn't even have to be crazy innovation, right? It doesn't have to be capital I innovation that is requiring PhDs and to move the needle the slightest bit. It's like, no, we just automated the way to size these ducks, right? And everybody can use it now. That's, that's, and, and what's funny is it, it one, on one level, it's like, holy crap, you did what? <laughs> that's amazing. And on another level, you're like, that was nothing, right? And, and it's somewhere in between there. And now you get to build on top of that and, and actually apply the layers of innovation that, that have been waiting for so long to show up in this industry because we are one of the last to actually be digitized in, in so many ways. To, to your point, putting a Revit into a, into a parameter in Revit, not the other way around, like that, that just seems so simple. But at the same time, it's, it's like could be groundbreaking for a firm to do that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, it, that's like, the origin story of test fit almost it's like we automated parking stalls like it wasn't even like our parking stall layout wasn't the best it was just like you knew how many count how many parking stalls were on a site so it's just like these yeah these minor changes can like actually completely change how we're like how fast we can do these things and i think one of the things i've been thinking about a lot recently is in terms of like making that jump or why certain people make that jump from like a traditional firm to a tech company or a startup or whatever you want to call it. And I think a lot of it is um, like people being more of pro- like a product person. So like for me, the issue that I had at some of my engineering firms was it was like the same process over and over again. Um, it was like start from a blank, blank white page. Uh, you know, design your your systems, your distribution systems. And you do that for a different application for each thing, but it wasn't so much a product that we were selling. It wasn't like this system, we're specialized in this one system and we're really good at designing it and building it and operating it. And so that's, I think, something that I didn't like about it was because it wasn't something I could, I guess, revise and like there wasn't a compounding effect. Whereas like in, if you go into tech or a startup, there likely is going to be a product and a compounding effect. Like you're getting VC money usually for this like specific problem. Um, and it's a specific product and you can say like, okay, each release, we're going to release this thing and it's going to be better than the last because we've added this code to it and these features and this customer feedback into it. So it's really like that's what I've been seeing most, like looking back at some of my art engineering firms is like, that was the difference is like, I have a, they had a, their product, I guess, was their client service and their brand behind that. And at a company like TestFit, uh, our product is like 
that's it. Like that's what we're working on and can continually improve. Yeah. That's interesting to think about it that way. I want to pull on the thread a little bit that the thing that you talked about at these engineering firms, their service is their product, like their process is their product. Right. And if the Mm -hmm. process isn't getting this compounding effect, which it, it rarely gets a compounding effect. It barely gets an incremental effect, right? Sometimes that's forced upon a firm by a client. Sometimes it's forced upon a firm by a new software release or something like that um, that actually fixes some bugs or something like that, right? But but for the most part, you, you mentioned earlier, it's like, I don't want to do it differently because the way that I do it works fine, right? And And I think when you start to see that, and I totally get that, right? A lot of people are just like tired of watching for the new thing and always learning and and they've they've gained all this experience and they want to just apply it the way they've applied it because it does work. And so I understand that side of it, but at the same time that is stagnation, right? And if growth and change aren't happening and you see that across the business, then guess what? The business isn't growing and changing and evolving and it's not experiencing uh, that that type of change because clients are evolving. The world is changing. And so the environment that you operate within has to also influence those kind of business decisions. You have to have that macro view of what's going on out there. Who are the talent that's coming in stream to the business? What do the clients want? What do the, what does the environment demand? Those things are evolving. And so if you continue to operate your business within like a, just thinking that the whole world is a control group and nothing's ever changing, right? Like that's your business is going to go away at some point. Like those clients will run out. And so uh, I get it. A lot of businesses just wait to be forced to react to those kinds of things. But I think what we're more interested in is the businesses who are proactive about those changes happening and actually leading those change, enabling those changes to happen even faster because we see the world demanding that we see our clients like how much better things could be in that future uh, if we move faster now. And it's not to say like we just need to kill ourselves and always be applying this kind of stuff to to our work. We we need we need stuff outside of work as well. We need to relax. We need but but at the same time, like that was always the promise of computers, right? Was that they're going to do the heavy lifting so that we can sit back with martinis on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> right so not that that's happened but um we we see the possible future where that those kinds of benefits can be had right and i think i'm just wondering from your point of view when you actually made the jump into test fit as a company and as a way of working and as working on the profession is that really the drive behind that or tell me what the drive is i think the drive with test fit in particular well one it was this product idea it was like i want to i want to build on this product i'm i'm bored of being you know in client services being a part of that product and not being able to actually like improve it at scale so that that was one that was one thing i think the other thing for me which makes test fit significantly different is test fit i and i believe i i believe this i'm sure other people have uh, other opinions test fits one of the one of the few startups or companies that I'm seeing that is actually like putting your the design knowledge in the code. I think a lot of a lot of startups right now or just tech companies in general, they're willing to make like a relatively generic tool, you know, that you can draw in or you can model in or fabricate from. 
without actually having that, not without taking the risk to put that design knowledge into the software. Mm, um, interesting. And yeah. And so like for TestFit, that design knowledge at first was just parking stall layout. It's like, how can you do this? And then the next was like, all right, how can we take a uh, podium uh, style multifamily apartment building and put the design knowledge of firewalls into that and unit placement and unit mix? And it like, those are all things that need to get done in a project. And, uh, but no one like necessarily enjoys doing that. So like, no one why wants not to do that? Yeah. Why right. not do that? Um, <laughs> so that was that those, those two things I think were my biggest drive. It was like wanting to work on a product and also really wanting to make change in the industry. Cause I think also a lot of times people can move to tech and they say like, I'm out of the industry now the like design algorithms or procedures that we're making right now. Like I, I consider myself like relatively in the industry still. It's like, this is a design problem. You know, how do I lay out a residential subdivision? I talked to a bunch of people, gather all that info. And now it's like, all right, this is the design knowledge. Let's, let's put this into code and like get this to people so that they can, they can use it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you are, a product manager. And I, I'm just interested in, I don't think you, when you, maybe you did start at TestFit with that title. Maybe you didn't, maybe you can just tell us, tell us how that worked and, and tell us what that means at TestFit. Originally. So I was, I was looking for, for a job. I had, I had known Clifton for a few years now through Twitter, through conferences, those kind of things. And I saw what he was doing with TestFit. And I was like, immediately like, you just did like a lot of the you know geometry creation that I would need for to design a mechanical system. Let me like help automate that. So my first title at TestFit was like director of MEP automation or something like that. And I came in pretty gung ho. I like created all this documentation of like, here's how we automate electrical uh, rooms. Here's how we do plumbing drains here's how we do uh mini split uh automation and like we put out like a survey to people of like uh, you know sign up for an e you know put your email in here and let us know when uh we'll let you know when like we have some mep automation stuff or something and i remember getting it back and it was like two people signed up and i knew one of the people so basically that i saw that and i was like okay I can add value elsewhere. Like I, I know the industry, I know this, like, you know, how to automate some of this stuff. I don't know how to code or I know how to code in Python or C sharp. Not well. Um, test fits written in C. So it's a whole other beats, but basically, so like that was my first, my first role pretty quickly. I was like this, I can do better. So I then was a director of partnerships, which, uh, I worked with, like Enscape and Cove tool to basically get those integrated into our software. And then after doing that, I was really getting involved in the product team. So I became a product owner and then eventually up to product manager now. In terms of what that means at TestFit, that's being in charge of the, of the releases, like making sure we have the things in there that we want, talking to a lot of customers and getting feedback from them. So gathering all that feedback, saying like, hey, this is a new market we could go for. This is kind of some light documentation around it to start coding it and just interfacing with the software developers to actually 
like interpret those things for them. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the fun of joining of a startup is like you basically join with one role and if you're like willing to just keep going and finding like the things that you're bringing most value to, uh, you can kind of do whatever you want, which is like, I don't know. It's really fun. And working with 15 people like towards that goal is even better. There's endless needs for th- things to be done and only a certain number of people to do them. <laughs> right. So, exactly. Yeah. Right. So TestFit has evolved. I think the last time that I had Clifton on here, he's been on twice and we've talked a little bit about about that. It, I think it was more about the roles of CEOs and startups and things like that. But maybe you can talk about some of the evolution that's happened both publicly, but from your view, you know, your inside view of how the product has evolved over time. Like you, you just mentioned the multifamily to, well, it went from parking to multifamily to, I know you guys do like storage, you do uh, residential subdivision. So just take us through what's happened over the last year or two. Yeah. So we, we started out with parking stalls. Uh, That's like, that in itself could have been like, I think they probably could just sold off that algorithm for like a couple million dollars. Like it's super useful. Like that's what we started with. Um, went into multifamily, different versions of multifamily. So podiums, wraps, donuts, like garden, urban type things with surface parking. And then basically we recognize like, okay, you know, we have a good amount of high density. We also need some lower density stuff. So we went into uh, townhomes, uh, single family in a way. And then uh, what else do we have in there? Row homes, that kind of thing. So we did that a bit. And then we recognized in right now in real estate, um, industrial buildings are just exploding everywhere. Everyone's working on them. Civil engineers, architects, developers, they're vastly needed due to like supply chain type things. And we said like, look, like we have some algorithms already that could kind of fit with this. Like, let's see what we can do with it. And within three months, uh, one of our engineers, Ben Tremblay, who's brilliant with these like new solvers, was able to create this like just amazing solver. That's just like, here's a big piece of land. Here's a big building. Here's your parking. Here's your trailer parking. And then, so after that, we then went into, we were looking at our housing markets that we had. And we recognized, like, we pretty much have everything from towers down to townhomes, but we didn't have, like, residential subdivisions. Um, and they're slightly different because it's, you know, taking a large piece of land, slicing it up, putting a road network, and then putting houses on it. And so we figured if we wanted the entire housing spectrum, then that would be, like, one of the, one of the things that we're missing. So we went through that, created a new product, released it a month or two ago, maybe. Um, and that's like, that's hitting the market spot on. But I think what we've recognized, we also did office hotel at some point, uh, actually right before the pandemic. So poor timing there. And we also have a kind of generic, like massing tool in there. So I think what we had, we actually found was we went through a lot of these markets and they were super opportunistic. It's like in, industrial is really hot. We needed to add like more housing density. So we did those, but I think right now what we're looking at is like, we have a super solid handle of all of housing and these, these industries. Uh, what we really want to work on is like the core product of like, 
user interface, user experience, customization. Um, we have these different product tenants laid out that basically are like our guidelines for for our product. Um, and one of those is uh, generate and then edit. Basically, like we don't, we want to give you an answer first that gets you like 80% of the way there. And then we want you to be able to do the rest of the 100%. And so that's really what a lot of our focus is going to be on. It's like, how can we allow that customization within it so that when you go from test fit, you can be like, this is ultimately the building I want. Let's get it into Revit or some other document documenting software and like run with it from there. Because right now it's like, it can be a little rough on the edges in that respect. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. You've already heard a lot about Avail as a longtime sponsor of the show, but wait, this is a new message for you, distinguished listener of the Troxel podcast. We can't talk about Avail's latest desktop release without talking dynamic paths. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, of course you do. Dynamic paths allow BIM managers to store data in BIM 360, OneDrive, or any other cloud solution. In the latest version of Avail, they expand on location agnostic, making content easier and faster to find for the user. Imagine not having to worry if the content is on a local network drive or in the gazillion cloud storage locations. How is this even possible? Pure magic. It's the stuff of unicorns and rainbows, my friends. Let's keep this just between you and me. Here's some of the details. Following on the promise of being content agnostic, Avail now makes location complexity a thing of the past. Content is more than Revit. It ranges from Rhino to AutoCAD to Office documents. Well, this is next level. We're talking network locations. Have you ever seen one location where all the project content lives? Snap out of it. Of course you haven't. Content can live anywhere from the local network to BIM 360 to OneDrive to any other cloud location. Why does this matter? Well, good thing there are no dumb questions, because the answer is that it frees up users to concentrate on design, which pays the bills, and getting content into a project, not managing technical issues around network drives and paths. Let's face it, they aren't that good at that anyway. Avail's mission is to make finding content simpler and easier. Like our favorite architect Louis Kahn once asked, Data, where do you want to live? I don't think he really asked that question, but Avail allows teams to, so let's just roll with it. And hold the phone. For those of you who know what this means, Avail also supports federated data requirements. Data can live where it needs and must live, allowing users secure and simple access to it. So what's the takeaway? What's the big picture here? Settle down. I have it right here. Avail is a platform that connects all types of data from all types of locations hiding complexity. Try it today. Go to getavail.com to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. You guys do have some user intervention tools built in there when it comes to zoning, envelope, splitting sites, multiple sites. And so I mean, maybe you can just give for those who don't know about TestFit, which I, I don't know who that is anymore, but but they're out there, right? Can you just like give give a give a bit of an overview of what the tool does from a, a data standpoint, but also a visual standpoint, um, and and what 
you, you talked about all these different categories, but I think there's some underlying bones that cross all of those categories to just give people an idea about what they would be looking at test fit. Why, why pay attention to it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say a lot of our customers are going to be architects, real estate developers, civil engineers, people involved early on in the process of constructing a building. And they just want to know, I have this piece of land. It's here. It's this shape. What can I put on it? And by early in the process, that's really what you're focusing on right there is those things that you just said. It's like feasibility type stuff. It's is this deal even going to work? Is it going to pencil out? Is it how profitable could it possibly be? What are our different options? It's really early on in the process. I just wanted to kind of underline that. Yeah, super, super early on. You know, with some of our real estate developers, maybe they haven't even talked to an architect yet. Maybe they don't even know exactly, like it could range from a residential subdivision all the way up to a wrap there. Like it could be anything. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Test fit is really good at taking that that piece of land, giving you all these different options of what can go on it, and then allowing you to tweak that. So let's take, for example, you have you know a couple acres worth of land in Charlotte, um, and you want to put, you think you want to do some type of high density multifamily building on that. In our software, it looks like Google Maps. Basically, you go to that location, draw on the site, or select it. And it's going to populate those very quickly. And then what you can do with it is basically adjust your unit mix, unit count, what your units look like in the apartment building. And that's actually one of the things that's pretty underrated about TestFit right now is our unit mix. So we can basically hit, let's say you have one, two, and three bedroom units with some studios tossed in there. You can hit a percentage down to like one or two percentage points automatically. And we're just, you know, reshuffling those units around, uh, still hitting like fire code with it. Um, it's really like just a, a magical thing. Um, and then once you do do that, um, you can adjust setbacks, you can just watch certain zoning metrics. And then once you do do that, you can kind of enter a manual mode, which allows you to say like, actually, I want to adjust this massing here. So instead of a U shape, it's more of an L shape. Or, you know, I have this setback that, you know, is kind of the kind of diagonal across some of the levels. So it's going to have more of a laid back feel on it. And as those edits are happening, all of the units are changing on the fly, super fast. Like there's no, there's no like slowdown. There's no recalculation that you can feel. It's just happening in real time. And I think that's really when you see it, when you use it, when you watch a demo, like you just, the visual is all of these constraints are still being upheld, like hitting that percentage unit mix, hitting the size that certain spaces need to be, or the counts that they need to be, or the views that you want to achieve. Like there's so many things going on in there and it's all just happening in, there's no waiting around. And so when I think about the architectural design process or, you know, and, and who might be using this, I'm thinking like, okay, come up with three schemes and we'll see you in three days. No, it's like that, that, that just isn't even a thing anymore. No. Yeah. And I think that's when I, when I was joining TestFit at first, I was like, why are we, you know, why are we a desktop based app and why are we, you know, written in C versus being like a web-based app or something like that? Exactly. Web-based or, you know, like cloud compute type thing. And pretty quickly working with one of the co-founders and CTO, Ryan Grieg, 
I recognize like it's just this insanely fast reaction. Like most of our, we can do every single solve normally under 20 milliseconds. And like it, with cloud compute type stuff, there is there are certainly great use cases for that. But in this initial feasibility level design, like you want that fast response. Like you don't want to have to wait like 30 seconds to be like, oh, that's actually an option I don't even want. Like it's, it's just- so crazy to think that you can't even wait 30 seconds. Like after you because after you experience this and you see how powerful it is as a decision making tool, right? Decisions happen at the speed of thought. And that's how fast this tool actually has to be as well, or you just won't be satisfied with it. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, the last thing you want to do is go into like a, as like, let's say an architect and a real estate developer are meeting to, to talk, talk over one of these or, you know, sites that they have. The last thing you want to do as an architect there is be like, oh, let me hit this button, wait 30 seconds to a minute, and then we're going to get a response. It's like, no, actually, I want to be like having a conversation with my client, changing things on the fly, looking at this metric saying like, okay, we're still hitting this metric or, oh no, we've, you know, gone below the dwelling units per acre that we want. There's just all these things that need to happen in real time. And that's, that's what this allows. So like, that's why I was like, okay, I get the desktop app. I get why it's written in C just because it's so fast. And we're, we're, that's not to say we don't like, we don't like the internet. The internet's great. We're actually we're, <laughs> Hey, we're, it turns we're, out we we do yeah. like the internet. We do like the internet. You know, we're <laughs> we're we're coding in something that was made 50 years ago, but um and but yeah, like the like we understand the use cases of cloud compute, cloud storage kind of thing, which is why we're working towards some of that. So, right now we're working basically like a lot of teams want to like if we have a large corporate client they're like, I want to be able to share my files and my uh, standard units and my zoning like metrics and financial metrics. Like, I want to share that throughout the companies. Like, that's an easy thing. We're like, you know what? That doesn't have to be in the desktop. Let's put that on the web. Everyone can share it within their company. You know, you can have approvals or denials of certain things. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited about that because we're starting to be like, okay, we have a super solid desktop product. Let's start looking at the web. Let's use it for what it's best at, which is like sharing, collaboration, those kind of things, and go from there with it. It's interesting. I wanted to kind of go back to this idea of all of the different use cases that you have identified. And one thing that Clifton talks a lot about is the idea of commodity buildings, right? And I think when people think of architecture, capital A architecture, especially, nobody's thinking of commodity buildings, but yet there is so much of that building that's happening. Look at the housing shortages across the United States and way beyond that, California. I I mean, this is a topic that is on everybody's mind in California. I'm sure it is anywhere that there's a a coastline because that's where most of the people are. But it, it just, just thinking about commodity buildings and how that needs to be a part of the conversation in AEC much more and as a much bigger percentage of the conversation pie and how test fit is kind of choosing to go there first, right? The, all of the types, the typologies that you mentioned are pretty much, they, they could at least start out as this idea of commodity building types because you're kind of solving the basic, like anytime you do multi, multifamily, you're solving the, the same things on every single site, even though every single site 
has different requirements, layouts, zoning, but the, the fundamentals of the building are the same until it gets to a point. And then, like you said, then you're going to take it and you're going to do something else with it, right? But to to kind of get those initial ideas out quickly, you've chosen these commodity spaces because the rules are the same all the time, right? And so if you're a firm that specializes in any of those verticals, this tool makes that process way better. So maybe just elaborate on this idea of, of commodity, why, why it needs to be a bigger piece of the conversation pie, things like that. I mean, I think like, because it's, it's housing, you're right. Like everyone cares about this. Like everyone needs a house. Um, and right now, like we just don't have enough houses in, in, in the U S and, and likely the world. So I think that's like a, it's a, it, it's a really fun problem to tackle. It's like, this is needed. Most people on both, both sides of the, uh, you know, political aisle agree with this. And this is our form of like acting on that. It's saying like, okay, like for me, it's like, I know software, I know design, like this is my way of being like, yes, I can attempt to do something about this housing crisis. And yeah, I think the reason why commodity is like the first, like one of the first big problems to go after is you're right. There's like, there's certain rules to it, right? It's like, you need a corridor, you can have units on one side or the other. You want to hit this mix. This mix usually is associated with like demographics of the area of uh, how large the building is. You know, there are a million different things that go into that. So actually coming back to like the idea of parametricism, like it works pretty well with it. Like it's not this like big, massive problem that and my soft, like the software developers in my company would totally agree and be like, yes, this is a big, massive problem and it's really difficult to solve. Like stop saying this, but you know, it's, it's defined to like, it's constrained to certain rules. So that idea of parametricism works pretty well because it's like, here's this rule, here's this value, allow them to change it within this range. And that's going to work, right? Like you don't need a corridor that is a hundred feet wide. Let's constrain that, build a, form, uh, you know, a algorithm or procedure around it. And then we can work within that constraint. And so like people sometimes come to us and they're like, would you ever do hospitals? And it's like, yes. I think we could, we could apply certain rules. There'd be a little more human interaction with it. Um, but it's starting to get away from that idea of like, like commodity and like hard rules to it. There's, you know, it's starting to get into more of like a creative type thing, which I'm not saying test fit would never do that. I'm just saying it would, it would allow, it would, it, it would require more human interaction with that, which we're, we're fine with, but it's getting into another realm. Yeah, you got to you got to pick your battles, right? And and that as a product manager and and you know this is something that came up in a conversation with Daniel Davis, right? This idea of horizontal software versus vertical software. And you guys kind of kind of are trying to do both, right? You're you're trying to solve each one of the verticals in a very horizontal way, right? Because, you know, multifamily housing is different than residential subdivision is different than industrial, but you're trying to solve for people who not necessarily dabble in each one of those markets, but really solve it for each one of those markets with a similar engine behind all of it. And the engine is yeah. the horizontal part. Yeah. And the, the engine or solver or configurator that we're using, like it is amazing how much overlap there can be. <laughs> like we did residential subdivisions and we were looking at that algorithm and we were like, I bet if we reduce those to a five foot by 10 foot box, 
that would be self-storage. And we did that and it was like, there it is. Self-storage. Yeah. I, it's so interesting because this is kind of like a powers of 10 thing, which is like a, a throwback to the Eameses, which like you keep zooming out <clears throat> and the, the fractal just gets bigger, right? Like, like that if the further you zoom in, you just keep seeing details. It's so interesting to think about when you just slightly change your focus on like residential subdivision to get it a little blurry. And it's like, Hey, that kind of looks like storage, right? Oh, there we go. We can. And now to me, the further you zoom in, like the detail just never stops. The further you zoom out, the the expanse just never stops. It's like telescopes keep seeing farther and farther. And guess what? There's just more stuff out there. And the microscopes just keep zooming in more and more and more. And guess what? Like there's just more detail. It's pretty incredible to think about that as it applies to what we do as architects and engineers, where these algorithms allow us to zoom in and zoom out and the detail stays kind of constant through all of these so so because as architects i know like we operate at the thirty thousand foot level and the three foot level and the three inch level and we're continual like this is what computers have enabled us to do right is that scroll wheel on the mouse right it's like zoom in zoom out zoom in zoom out and how much time is just spent zooming in and zooming out because it's important right to have all of these views of what we're working on kind of at the same time and and to me that's so interesting about about the the work that you guys are doing and how it can apply to slightly similar, but different markets or commodity to building types. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing how like, like, I mean, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes I think we're a little more purposeful and making like a generic kind of algorithm. So then we can be like, okay, yes, we can, you know, instead of being like, this is going to be a residential subdivision algorithm. What it really is, is taking like, negative space dividing it up and putting things within that whereas you know our high density apartment buildings like that's taking that negative space and like fitting like l's and t's and u's through it and then building around that so it's like it's it's fun to think of like these different things of how they or like you know how these different procedures can apply to other things um and they they just sometimes come out of nowhere <laughs> yeah, it's really incredible. Uh, what are we missing talking about here? I, I'm I'm interested in hearing what what you're working on now, what you're excited about at TestFit and and the industry at large. We we kind of touched on it earlier. I'm very excited to like start getting TestFit into the web in certain ways. Um, it's not going to be like look like our desktop app necessarily, but we'll have bits and pieces of that there. Um, that's just really exciting. We're hiring more web developers. Um, so that's great. Um, the big piece we're missing that I just remembered is Rex. We got to talk about Rex. So, so say whatever you're about to say and let's, let's get into Rex as well. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. So that's exciting in terms of the industry in general. Let me think on this for a little bit. I don't know. I'm, I'm very excited with where the industry is, is going. Um, it seems like people are interested in, you know, using our tool to make change, to do things faster, to give it to more people. And I'm, I'm very excited for like kind of the different customer demographics that we're, that we're hitting too. Like we're starting to work with real estate brokers, general contractors, get it, like getting this product into their hands is so much fun because you get to see right away, like, oh, actually they don't, they don't care at all about, you know, the 
financial metrics that we're giving them as a general contractor. Like they're going to put historical pricing in there. Anyway, like how do we enable that? So talking with those people, seeing how we can make this product better for them is just like, it, it's super exciting. And the people we talk to are, I don't know, their faces light up. Like, it's just like, here's something different to help me do this. Um, this, this thing that I'm used to, and it's just totally changing the way they, they do business. This, this idea of democratizing this type, this knowledge or this, this experience, these algorithms, like with the embedded knowledge in them to lots of other people, I think probably has to come up a lot in your company. The, by encoding, I mean, this is how you started out the conversation, right? Test fits one of those things that puts the knowledge and experience into the algorithm. And that by definition then says, whoever uses this starts there, right? They don't start with that blank page that you referenced earlier. And this is huge, right? Because I know a lot of experienced, seasoned, gray hair architects who complain to no end that the juniors who come through their firms don't know anything. And yet they don't take the time to mentor them or teach them, right? So by by complaining, they're kind of just putting themselves in the spotlight of how ineffective they are as a teacher or a mentor. And so when a tool comes along like this, where the the rules are baked into it, I can only imagine the glee that these senior seasoned architects actually get a solution that isn't stupid, right? Because of that, and that's in quotes, right? It's like, wow, you pulled something off that no just out of school architect has been able to do before. Look how much time we still have to work on this project. That has to be a game changer when it comes to firms. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big part of it for me is like that the person using this algorithm should ultimately know like what's going on behind it. Right. Like I don't want them just to like throw a parking parking garage together and be like, yep, that's good. You know, and, and just trust it a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Like that. No, yeah, like, I see that, but I would, and I would, so in, you know, right now, whereas, you know, learning how that layout occurs is really difficult. You have to, you know, talk to the person that's get bills at the highest amount per hour in your firm. You have to like get all this information. You have to be proactive about that. I think in what, what's exciting about parts of TestFit is like people use our algorithm and then it can actually learn from it. It's like, oh, that's why when I move this staircase, uh, this firewall moves. And it's like, well, it's because this parameter is changing here, which is your distance from from that stairwell or something. So I would much rather have people learn from the algorithms than like go about this convoluted way of learning the like, you know, the way it is right now. Well, those constraints that you're talking about are are amazing, right? Because it's like I changed this thing and these other three things changed. Why? I actually get to ask the question, why is it doing that? Oh, well, that's our code requirement that's hard coded into there. It has to be that distance or less. Therefore, this thing moves. Okay. Wow, that was that that three minute lesson turns into experience that they then get to build upon. And it does at some level also become a teaching tool because if you are using a AutoCAD, for instance, which a lot of these firms still are, and you move the units, like the staircase doesn't follow, right? And then somebody's going to redline that and maybe it becomes a conversation. Maybe it comes just a complaint. Why don't these people know what they're supposed to know at the most basic level? It is kind of an interesting paradigm shift when it comes to the tool as a teacher as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
this term is overused way too much, especially with architects. It's like a playful thing, right? It's like when you're playing with things, you learn more. Like you're you're moving that stair and that firewall is moving, like or that unit's moving, whatever. And you're like, oh, I can do this. And it's like this dynamic thing that's giving me feedback. Right. It's like that's that's not happening in AutoCAD. It just doesn't it doesn't know that that's a unit. That's a stair. It just knows yeah. that that's it's a, just lines, a box. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- this is I think this is something that more people need to be having this conversation out in the open. I'm glad that I'm glad that we're able to have it. And when it comes to these kinds of, you know, these are the things that sit below the level of the shiny object, which is test fit. Right. And, um, this is, these are a big part of the reasons why software like this matters, why tech like this matters in AEC. So where are you guys going next? Let's talk about Rex and, and maybe you can just tease that for, you know, a future episode or whatever, but I, I would love to know where you guys currently are. I saw the the press release about Rex, but, but tell people a little bit more than, than they can get from a press release. At, at the core of it, Rex is really like what we're seeing is, you know, the, you know, architects are never, are, and it's not to, it's not because they don't want to like architects sometimes aren't connected to the, the cost of building or the general contractors aren't connected to the cost of lending for the real estate developers. And so what we're really excited about and what we raised this series A for was uh, to basically connect those things to be to be able to inform everyone in the process like if you make this change of this unit, let's say you uh increase the width by 1 foot like that has downstream effects, not only for building, but for, um, for financing. Like there's all these things that, that that's going to affect. And we want to like show people that we want people to be able to say, like to be in a room together or not even be in a room together, just have an interface on the web or in our desktop app that shows them those changes. So your pro forma, your pricing and the actual design are, are connected. And right now in TestFit, they are in a way like, when you change that wall in test fit, your finances are going to update to, you know, increase the facade area and other things like, and the cost of that and whatnot. But that's not necessarily getting to the, to the right person right now. Um, so really I think, and what the way we'll know successfully done this is when your general contractor, your real estate developer, your architect, your civil engineer, they're all able to talk within the, the test fit ecosystem or interact in a way that the way, you know, when you make a change, you understand that that's affecting this person and you can communicate that and make sure it's, it, it works for the project and that it can still get built because of that. So this is all about creating feedback loop mechanisms for, because I think traditionally with test fit, it's, it's weird to think about a tech company having traditional uh, link to it. But the idea is that you're the dry, the driver is getting all that information. The person who's messing with the, the, the generator, the, the engine of what's, what's your word for this, the configurator, right? Like it's, they're the ones getting all that feedback. And so what you're talking about here is letting the passengers on the bus sit at the table, right? So that everybody is, is, collaborating on this in real time and get being able to provide the input so that it's not only meeting everyone's expectations, but so that you're getting their expertise put in at the same time as traditionally, what was the, just the driver doing it? Yeah, exactly. And to go with that a little further, um, I think it's, 
like it can't be a completely open process, right? Like everyone has kind of their their secret sauce, and right, like that's not going to change in this industry for a very long time, I believe. Um, you know, some vertical companies may do like may be able to, you know, say here's my secret sauce to this department, here's my secret sauce. But right now, like we're relatively fragmented in how we do this, so like we have to kind of work within those constraints. So that means making sure that you know, as a general contractor. I can use my historical pricing model in the Rex model, um, but I don't have. I can. I can. You know, show the important things to people, but not everything. I can. I can hold on to my secret sauce. That's not visible to everyone, but the things that are important to people, and they're like what they interact with, is visible. So it's like making sure our customers in the Rex model can trust that their their data is safe but they're able to share the data that they need to. Interesting. Yeah. That sounds like a, a pretty wicked problem to solve because I, I'm sure at some level, some of those things overlap. So how, how do you identify who has control over that? I can just see that being a, a messy problem. <laughs> it, it will be a messy problem. Hence why we need $20 million to, uh, to cover it. I think what it, what it is, is like, we've, we've got the good foundation, right? Like it ultimately comes down to the, geometrical building and data behind it. We've we've covered that with our configurators, most of the housing spectrum, housing density spectrum within that. So I think that's like the foundation that we're working off of and making sure that the what is visible and isn't is correct is basically based on like those those different groups, right? So like if you're a large construction group, you're working with TestFit, you have our data your data in our secure cloud. At the same time, like you're able to say, I want these parameters to be seen by other people. I don't want these. So I think that's ultimately it. It's giving the customer the ability to say, like, this is my data. I'm going to share this or I'm not going to. So there's like a data management side of things going on then that kind of raises the bar for accountability within a firm, right? Of what they're sharing or what they're not and who's in control of that. And yeah, like it's it's this data governance kind of a Yeah. Layer. Exactly. And actually I'm I'm really excited. I heard uh you were gonna talk with Kyle, uh my coworker, uh in a in a few episodes or something because he like he has this vast experience in data models and he has, you know, diagrammed out this thing to a T to at least start working on. And it's uh I think it's absolutely brilliant um so i'm excited for you to talk to him about it that's that's a really good cliffhanger teaser <laughs> for a future episode i appreciate you doing that this has been a fantastic conversation that i definitely will have a link to test fit and i will link to your twitter and your linkedin is there anywhere else that that people can follow along all things nat mcdonald that's pretty much it i'm on twitter incessantly so uh feel free to dm me if you, uh, if you have any that that's it and yeah thank you Evan. this is uh you you have a hell of a podcast here and uh yeah it's it's fun to to catch up thank you sir let's do this again all right sounds good take care thank you to avail for their support of this podcast episode Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today.
This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.